Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by a special guest, another one of my professors. Um, he was my hermeneutics professor, Hebrew professor, life in Christ professor. I don't know. I think I took a whole bunch of classes uh, with you, Dr. Percy, and New Testament. Um, so welcome, Dr. Percy. Thank you, Lisa. Glad to be here. Um, if you would... Um, Introduce yourself to our audience. Give them a little bit of background about you. Okay. Um, as as uh, Lisa noted, I, I am a professor, uh, associate professor here at uh, Liberty University in the School of Divinity. I uh, teach a, a bunch of New Testament classes. I also teach hermeneutics, and uh, I am the Ph.D. program director for our Ph.D. in theology and apologetics here at the school as well. So uh, I've, I've got more than enough to keep me busy. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> so where did you do your... Um your graduate studies? Oh, my uh, doctorate comes from Baylor University. I did a PhD there in biblical studies, fo- focused primarily in New Testament, but I also did a minor in uh, philosophy and philosophical studies. Um, I have uh, more degrees in a thermometer, um, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy, happy to work through every one of them if you want to, but my background is primarily in uh, uh, biblical studies and philosophy. Awesome. And um, I always uh, I talk about you still to this day. It was the definitely the conversations we had um, in and out of class that definitely helped guide me and shape my theological understanding. I remember one in particular was one when I was really wrestling with the authority of scripture. And, you know, you wrestle through all kinds of things while you're in seminary and he's coming to you and frustrated about it. And you, one of the most encouraging things that always stuck with me and you said that. I wrestle with that. I wrestle with that too, which was encouraging to know that you're teaching it now. That if you wrestle with it, then I'll I'll be okay. So I just want to thank you for. <laughs> you're welcome, Lisa. I, I have fond memories of our conversations together, and uh, I'm still continuing those conversations with students just like you. Um, it's it's amazing to me that uh, I just told my hermeneutics class today that that God is not afraid of our questions. Uh, I think we tend to forget that uh, God's bigger than the uh, even the, any skepticism we can bring to him. And uh, he, he's not only willing to let us ask questions, sometimes he even answers them. Now, I won't guarantee he'll give us the answers we want, but uh, um, sometimes he'll even respond to us. And I, for that, I'm very grateful. Yes, very true. And um, so today we're going to be talking about the intersection of hermeneutics and apologetics. Mm-hmm. Um, I posted something the other day that uh, said... Um, we can't develop a biblical worldview until we know what's biblical. <laughs> and uh, a lot of times I'm discovering that those who sometimes seek to defend the faith don't really know how to properly interpret scripture. And that causes sometimes a problem because scripture is there's different genres. Um, there's you have to understand um, how to interpret the text and the historical content behind it. Um, in order to kind of land at at the what the author is really saying and what he intended and what God is really saying through the text, uh, right. so um, I wanted you to kind of help us out with that. How do we kind of navigate through that defending the faith and and the intersection of 
um, apologetics and hermeneutics? Well, well, since I do teach hermeneutics, I, I have a special place in my heart, obviously, for proper interpretation of Scripture. Um, the, the, a lot of apologists will start from a philosophical perspective, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, in my opinion, since I also have studied philosophy. But as I look at the, the way hermeneutics and apologetics work together, I'm convinced that in order, as you, as you said earlier, in order to defend a biblical worldview, I must understand the Bible appropriately. And uh, so I think the intersection here comes right at that point. If, if, my, if my goal as a Christian and as an apologist is to uh, stand up for the faith of Jesus Christ, for the faith that, that has been proclaimed for 2,000 years, then it's incumbent upon me as a, as a disciple of Christ, as a follower of God, to understand that properly. That takes tools. You, um, I remind people all the time, uh, just because you have the Holy Spirit, just because you're a follower of Christ, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to interpret Scripture correctly uh, in every turn. So proper method is, is certainly part of the deal. Uh, proper understanding of Scripture, understanding uh, the Bible from the perspective of what the author intends and perhaps from what the first readers of these books understood. These are, I think, core values. And anybody who's trying to defend uh, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of the faith, we'll want to start with an understanding of how did Paul see it? How did Jesus see it? How did uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke see it? These are things that, uh, these are questions that I think are necessary to ask before we can even start with the idea of defending such a worldview in a 21st century context. Yeah, because I remember in our Hebrews class, uh, one of the things that you made us do was read, well, you read the whole book out loud to us. Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I'll be doing it again in the, in the spring, in fact. <laughs> To show us that it was kind of us in 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 your um your mentor's perspective, Dr. William Lang, mm -hmm. a sermon, sure. and that that helps when you see because sometimes we look at scripture and we kind of isolate one verse and then we don't look at it in the larger context and we miss the message, and it's reading it aloud helps you see the broader picture and not just saying like that whole idea of seeing the forest from the trees. And sure. if you stand at the tree, you miss the forest. Well, um, and, yeah. In fact, I would argue, I'd go so far as to argue that the whole new Testament is, is pretty much intended to be uh, heard out loud. Um, I recommend to students all the time. They read the books to themselves out loud or, or by audio um, Bibles and listen to them on a regular basis. Because when, when the authors wrote these things, the intention was that someone would stand up in front of a group of people and read these texts out loud to people. And I think sometimes we miss the details, the, the, the finer nuances of the text, because we're so used to, to parsing them into verses and chapters. And, and chapter headings and, and verse numbers came at a later date. They weren't, you know, Paul didn't sit down and write a letter to the Galatians, for example, and put chapter one, verse one. He, he wrote a letter. And I do think, again, one of, one of the steps in understanding the text, one of the primary steps in hermeneutics is to ask what it was like in that time for that author, for that reader. Um, and I, I think we miss a lot when we don't take the text in its entirety. It's easy to proof text, to take a, a, a verse or two and say, this supports my view without knowing the context. And uh, um, as I've heard over and over again, and this quote's been credited to several scholars, so I won't take credit for it, but uh, a, a text without a context is a, is a pretext. Um, if, I, if I'm isolating a text and trying to make theology or a biblical worldview 
from an isolated text without putting it in the proper biblical context or even the, the context of the book in which it's found, the chances are good I'm going to get that passage wrong. Uh, I see this happen a lot in, uh, in doctrinal debates where people want to emphasize one side of an argument or another side of an argument. Uh, again, I'm not picking sides here. I'm just stating something I think should be pretty obvious. When we do this, we inadvertently proof text. We find a text that seems to support our view, and instead of looking at the context, we simply quote the text and assume that it makes it a done deal. Um, it, quoting the Bible is not always, uh, it doesn't always satisfy the argument. It doesn't end the argument. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, I was recently talking to um, someone who's left the Christian faith, mm. and one of the arguments they had was, I don't understand the scripture. Like, it seems to be contradicting one another. The Old Testament seems to be contradicting the New Testament. I don't know. I think what they were getting to is they had been trained to just read scripture without studying, knowing how to study scripture and properly interpret. So when you just read scripture throughout, and if you don't understand the context, you don't understand um, the flow, um, there seems to be sometimes contradictions. And it's, it's hard to reconcile that. And so if you... If you don't do your due diligence and study, you can kind of just throw it out and say, you know what, this book is is flawed. I shouldn't even use it. And so it really kind of just, you know, showed me even the more the importance of really training just everyday churchgoers in how to interpret scripture, um, because they're the ones who are on the front line. They're the front line apologists on in their jobs. Sure. Um, and if they if we haven't trained them as ministry leaders to properly interpret the scripture, they're, they're not going to be able to articulate or defend their faith because somebody's going to throw a verse out there and say, you know, the fa- even in the, 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 the biggest argument right now is the sexuality argument. Well, when they say, well, you know, the scripture says that this is God doesn't promote same sex marriage. When then, and then somebody will famously say, well, the Bible also says don't eat shrimp or pork. I eat this shrimp report, and that becomes an interpretation issue. Um, sure. And, and, and there are good interpretations, and there are bad interpretations. Mm-hmm. Um, Christians are as guilty of this as, uh, as our critics are. Uh, and I do think that this is, we have to have a holistic approach, ultimately. I mean, the book that we call the Bible, uh, those of us who are of evangelical faith, at least, the 66 books that make up our, our, our scripture, um, these books were written over thousands of years by 40 plus something authors. Um, understanding this in its context takes effort. It's not something you're just going to glean by uh, what I would call a Sunday school approach, reading the Bible on occasion and, and just memorizing a few passages. This is, it does, you're, like you said, it takes due diligence. It takes work. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that, uh, to paraphrase Peter, talking about Paul's writings that are hard to understand. Uh, that doesn't mean they can't be understood, but it does take some effort on our part. Uh, I think the, the, the danger is, as you just noted, we pick and we pick and choose the text that supports us, throw that text out as though that's the end of the argument. Um, as an example, the one you just mentioned, the, uh, the issue of, uh, of same-sex marriage or, or sexuality, um, it's easy to uh, co-opt the argument by simply quoting your favorite verse to prove your point, you, whether it's, well, Paul says homosexuality is an abomination, or, 
well, if you do that, then according to Leviticus, you shouldn't eat, uh, you know, seafood. But what have we proven there? We, we, you know, what we've proven is our ability to cite a text of scripture. We haven't proven whether we've actually understood the context of that scripture or not. Um, and I, I think this is the key that for where hermeneutics and apologetics comes together is context. I can't do apologetics from a 15th century perspective and make sense to a 20th century or 21st century audience. I have to, I have to talk in their language and their, con, in their context. The same thing's true with biblical interpretation. If I want to understand the Bible, I have to understand it in the context of when it was written, but then I have to bring those principles and ideas from the first century, in the New Testament case at least, into the 21st century and and contextualize it in the sense of making sense of those principles from a 21st century uh, perspective. That's why I think it's wrong simply to quote a verse as though somehow that verse is the end-all and be-all of the argument. I mm-hmm. Um, have we really understood that verse in its context? How do you think that we should, I know um, in, in in my Old Testament class, a lot of people struggle with how, I get this question a lot, how do I interpret Old Testament law in, in light of the New Testament? And I know the whole um, aspect, there's a, a wonderful article I posted. Um, it's written, um, I can't remember the professor, but it's, just on interpreting the Old Testament in light of the New and the idea of principalism and looking at the Levitical laws and interpreting it that way. Um, I know a lot of people say, well, what, since the, with the whole shrimp argument, what do we take out and what do we leave in? Yeah, that is, that is a complicated conversation. I'll be honest with you. I, I'm not sure how we can, uh, in one podcast, if we can <laughs> all the issues there. Uh, for me, and what I've said in hermeneutics before, what I'll, what I'll say here in brief is this. Christians read the text in a Christological perspective. That's that's expected. We're, I don't see a problem with that. But we also need to pay attention to what's aimed at us and what's not aimed at us. Uh, you and I, for example, there's not any Jewish blood in us as far as I know. Um, I, I'm pretty sure my ancestors weren't Jewish. Um, when I look at Leviticus, I can't look at it through the lens of the the mosaic covenant, the, the the mosaic background. Moses is the author of these five books, the Torah. It's going to be I'm going to be hard pressed to understand it from that Jewish perspective in the same way, perhaps, as the Jews for whom Moses wrote. On the other hand, because I believe Scripture is inspired by God, because I believe it is profitable and useful for instruction and for reproof and whatnot, then there has to be something in Leviticus that, as a Gentile follower of Jesus Christ, there's got to be something there that's applicable. How we weed through that might vary from passage to passage, but I think the bottom line here for us as as Christians is this. If the New Testament addresses it, we go with the New Testament interpretation. If the New Testament doesn't, then we need to ask ourselves questions on what's profitable. What shows, what, what parts of this is showing Christ? What parts of this has been fulfilled in, in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection? Uh, for example, sacrificial laws. Uh, for most Christians, this one's a no-brainer, right? I mean, Jesus died on the cross. He was the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate Lamb of God, as John the Baptist says, who takes away the sins of the world. So as far as Christians are concerned, um, animal sacrifice as atoning for sin in some sense is oh, it's, it's satisfied. The book of Hebrews goes into great detail on that issue, that the blood of bull, bulls and goats could not satisfy but the blood of Christ once for all 
created this this opportunity for salvation. But that still leaves dietary laws, um, laws about what you do if you find a, a hole in the wall of your house. These houses were built in many cases out of mud, and if there's a wound there is what the word says, it. how do you handle that wound? You get the priest to diagnose it. Um, this becomes an issue for us, right? I mean, I'm sitting here in my office. Uh, I have these nice uh, walls that, that somebody put up, right? They're, it's very, they're not mud, so it's very unlikely that it's going to that I'm going to encounter a situation where I need to call a priest in to check my walls out. On the other hand, is there a principle here regarding authority, spiritual living, um, the Levitical code uh, found in Leviticus is a code of holiness. It shows how the Jews were intended to be a people set apart by God whose lifestyle was distinguished by certain things. Well, there is a principle there, isn't there? I mean, we as Christians shouldn't be exactly like everybody else. If the only thing different about us is we profess a faith in Christ, then it makes me wonder if we really understand what following Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and by that, I mean, if, if the church looks just like everyone else, then what distinguishes us from the rest of the world? Uh, I think that's what Leviticus is at least partially about. Uh, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, so I don't want to tread, I want to tread lightly where I'm not is familiar, but certainly part of the principles here are what makes us different. And uh, the church, with all due respect, ought to be different than the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what apologetics is about, right? Defending mm-hmm. our difference. Mm-hmm. And and that's very much so correct. Um, what do you do? What do we do with um, hard passages in the scripture? Like your John 8 um, and the longer ending of Mark. How do we defend those as Christians and still hold to the authoritative nature of Scripture? Well, there, there are several approaches, obviously. Um, you have evangelicals that accept these, uh, John seven fifty three through eight eleven as being written by the Apostle John, by the same author of the Gospel of John. There are those who will defend the longer ending of Mark, uh, Mark sixteen nine and following, as being written by um, Mark as part of his original gospel. Um, I'm, I'm not one of those people that, that thinks that's a, a necessity to accept these uh, these materials as inspired uh, Bible, as inspired scripture. In fact, the, the illustration I often give to students is this. Uh, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Uh, we're not certain on that authorship. We can say it sounds Pauline. We can say perhaps a person who's related to Paul is the person who wrote this book. We, uh, there's all kinds of theories out there, but we don't know beyond uh, a doubt that Paul wrote it. And yet, Hebrews is still in the canon. We accept it as inspired text. So, John 7.53 and following is an example. Uh, if, if I say the, uh, the, the woman caught an adultery story, you know, if somebody says to me, well, John didn't write that, does that necessarily mean it's uninspired just because John didn't write it? I think the key for us as Christians, especially when talking to non-Christians who use these texts as attempts to undermine authority of Scripture, we remind people that that uh, that these Scriptures were copied over thousands of years. Uh, we uh, last count—I don't know the exact count—but I know the last number I saw was over 5,500 copies of some sort of the New Testament. Um, that's 5,500 scraps, manuscripts, scrolls, whatever that contains something of the New Testament text. That's more copies than we have 
of uh, the Roman um, histories. That's more copies than we have of Homer. So when you look at that, now, does more necessarily mean um, that it's inspired? No, I'm not making that argument. But that certainly shows the antiquity and importance of these documents that people multiplied the copies of them. And I, to be quite honest with you, I, when I deal with these passages in class, I look at them. I look at them as hard passages. If um, if we determine by a significant study that John did not write the passage in question, what do we do with it? Some scholars, I have some friends, in fact, who say they just don't preach it. They they leave it out. They assume it's not biblical. Um, some, like me, for example, I'll say, well, we have texts that have it here. Perhaps God intended it, even if the original author didn't. And so I'm more willing to say, let's look at this text in the context of the rest of the New Testament. Does it show a, a true uh, a true illustration of who Jesus is? Does it show us something that we find other way other places in Scripture? Well, John 7:53, the answer is yes. The long reading of Mark, the answer is also yes. So even if we conclude that the original authors of the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John did not write these, that does not rule out that these, this could be inspired material. And I think that's the defense we Christians make. Um, it, does it matter? Well, John 7:53 and following, if you took that story out of John's Gospel, the Gospel would read fine. Um, but the story, I think, is a significant story. It's duplicated. Similar types of stories are told elsewhere in the Gospel. Mark 16 is an even better case, in my mind, um, the story that's told from 16.9 on, the longer ending, is actually similar to what you'll find in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke or even the Gospel of John. So the material that's contained in this so-called longer ending is witnessed to in other places. If I don't use the longer ending, I still have it in other places. So if the skeptic says, we need to, the scripture's authority is undermined, I remind them, but the, you still have these stories told in other Gospels in other places. And so what do we do with that? Um, I think Scripture is completely reliable for a variety of reasons. Um, we could go into those in a moment. But the bottom line here is to find a discrepancy in copies of the text does not necessarily undermine the reliability of that text. It, it just shows the the, the, the detail, the, the literal scrupulousness with which people copy these things. That we have manuscripts that, that show us that there are differences, prove that people were diligent in trying to uh, to make sure the copies were accurate. So you said you, what would you say who would, to a listener who says, well, how do I know scripture is reliable? You said you could, um, you have your own reasons to why you know that scripture is reliable. Would you mind giving us those? Well, the first the first thing we have to ask is uh, what do we what do we consider reliable and historical? Um, mm -hmm. I think if we take the case of the gospels by themselves, we can look at the gospels and find historical events in them. The gospels either are historical documents, that is, they contain real live historical events, or they don't. Um, how can we tell? Well, let's you know when I was uh, when I was Younger, um, I was uh, I, I wasn't always paying attention when I drove. Uh, I guess that's a, <laughs> a danger for a lot of us young people when we were young, right? Uh, as I get older, I think I'm doing better. But uh, I, I had an accident once, and uh, it, it, my my car got damaged pretty bad. Now, um, 
let's say the police officer comes on the scene to write, you know, the report of this damage, and he sees my car sitting in one place, the front end crumpled, the other car sitting where it was after I'd hit it, and it crumpled. And let's say the police officer said, well, the obvious answer to what happened here is a lightning bolt came down from heaven, uh, struck these two cars, and caused this damage. Right? Most of us would say, that doesn't seem likely from history. We would, we would want a likely explanation. So the likely explanation is that these two cars impacted each other in some way. Uh, the question, who's at fault? The question, who hit who? That could be raised, but the point is that a collision happened seems apparent. Mm-hmm. You look at the biblical story, right? We have plenty of witnesses beyond the Gospels of the existence of Jesus and the existence of the, the church. We have uh, we even have references to Jesus' crucifixion outside of the Gospels. Uh, the Gospels then, their record of Jesus as a living, breathing human being who died seems to be pretty pretty straightforward historical. I, in fact, I think you'll find very few liberal scholars who will argue against the historicity of Jesus, mm-hmm. that this man existed and that the Romans crucified him, or the Jews in collaboration, however you want to you know, say that, that he was crucified. My point is, if that part of the story is accurate, then why do I lay aside the rest of the story? Why would Matthew or Mark, or Luke, or John, tell me history, and then mix in stuff that's not necessarily history. If I can trust the historical aspects, why can't I trust the other points? For me, it, it boils down to how we read history. Um, Americans, U.S., uh, the 21st century in the U.S., very skeptical of anything that smacks of historical narrative, right? We're going to question everything as spin. But mm-hmm. is that necessarily true of first century writers, Mm-hmm. Were, were John and company writing propaganda? I'm not even sure they would understand what the word propaganda meant. Mm-hmm. From Luke's perspective, he was writing, and Luke even says, I talked to eyewitnesses, I wrote down an orderly account. Luke understood that what he was writing was historical reality. I That, for me, is, is sufficient. If, I don't see any reason to challenge Luke's view. Now, I can compare the manuscripts and ask what was Luke's original document like. That's what text critics tend to do, at least on some level. But that doesn't mean that that I I should question Luke's uh, intention at all. Luke was writing what he thought was a historical account of who Jesus was and what the early church did. And I'll be honest, I I see no reason to doubt that account based on just the, the fact of it and that it's supported not just by Luke's comments, but by Matthew's, by Mark's, by John's, by outside writers who uh, have commented on Jesus and his disciples and Jesus' crucifixion. So I, I think, again, I think we can take the reliability pretty straightforwardly just by how we understand history in general. We, you know, I, I wasn't there when Pearl Harbor happened. I wasn't even born. How do I know Pearl Harbor is a historical reality? Well, somebody will say, well, you can read it in history books. Okay, I can pick up a history book, read about Pearl Harbor. But does that tell me it really happened, or does it just tell me that somebody wrote about it happening? Mm-hmm. At some level, there has to be um, a level of trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things we said in hermeneutics, if you remember from the class, was that knowledge is justified true belief. 
the philosophers have debated this idea for years, so I don't want to say this dogmatically, but in general, we understand knowledge to be something that uh, is true, something we believe, and we want to have some evidence that our belief is accurate, i.e. true. So when we look at Pearl Harbor, we look at witnesses, we look at evidence, we look at the, the stories of history, and we conclude something happened in December at the, in, during World War II that we call the invasion of Pearl Harbor. And, mm-hmm. and, and nobody doubts that the Japanese invaded. Mm-hmm. We might discuss and debate the details, but the story is accepted. Why not do the same thing with Scripture? We've got evidence. We've got historical accounts, both in Scripture and outside of Scripture. We have people who eyewitness accounts, Luke says, that were given to us. So why should I doubt the reliability of that historical document just because I didn't see it, just because I wasn't there to verify it? That Mm -hmm. seems like a fairly weak argument. I wasn't Mm -hmm. there for the Civil War. (laughs) Thank God, I'm not that old. Uh, (laughs) That doesn't mean the Civil War in America didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Right? So I think the the problem is how we look at history. We want um, the 21st century person in general, especially the West, we want uh, we want fast evidence. We want hard evidence. We want um, we want something that we can touch, see, feel, or taste. But when you're dealing with historical documents, you don't always have that kind of evidence. We can't get in a time machine and go back and verify it. But we do have evidence that Jesus existed. We have evidence that he preached to the Jews. We have evidence that's, that, that, that somebody had him crucified. And mm-hmm. all that evidence is contained not only in the Gospels but in outside materials. Then the Gospels add the issue of resurrection. The Gospels add the issues of, of these other perhaps disputed ideas about Jesus. But if the Gospels are recording historical data, why do I doubt the material that's unique to them while I accept the material that's not? That's a, that's a question I'd have to ask the skeptic. Uh, I've actually had skeptics tell me, well, Jesus never existed. And I ask mm-hmm. them, how do you know? And their response is, the church made it up. And I ask them, <laughs> how do you know? And how, how do you answer that question? Well, I think that's true. Well, wh- where's your evidence? Mm-hmm. And then they'll start citing me scholars, and there are some scholars out there who said Jesus never existed. They're, they're few and far between, but they do exist. And so I'll say, okay, if we're going to stack authorities up, let me cite you my scholars. And so I'll cite for them people like Richard Bauckham and Larry Hurtado and uh, uh, you know, D.A. Carson, uh, James Dunn, uh, you know, N.T. Wright. These are men who've worked with the, the historical texts and, and other texts. Well, yes, but they're Christians. So that invalidates their testimony? Mm-hmm. Well, you're a non-Christian, so you're going to come to a non-Christian explanation. Mm-hmm. The person will say to me, well, no, well, that's not right. Well, again, reliability, right? Mm-hmm. If, if I'm going to argue the text is unreliable because only Christians wrote it, then can I say then that your interpretation is unreliable because only non-Christians accept it? Very true. And yeah. we can, if we take that whole uh, philosophy, like you said, about every history book, we can never know anything about the past. That- no, you can't even you can't even know your own past. Mm-hmm. You can't even know that you were actually born. Oh yeah, <laughs> because I mean, you you can't usually you can't remember your actual. Well, I sure don't. <laughs> All I know are the stories I was told. And, you know, so I, I do think 
can I be, you know, the, the problem in uh, our society, especially Western society, is we want this certainty, this, this uh, almost uh, Cartesian, you know, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, this almost Cartesian solidity um, to, our, to our truth. The problem with that is we really don't know much of anything with that level of certainty, if we're honest. I mean, we, we just don't. And yet we know lots of things, things that we have evidence that are that the things that we have evidence for that are true and that we believe are true. World War II, the Civil War, um, the War of 1812, the Hundred Year War. Uh, should I, you know, should I, Vietnam, Korea? Should we list all the conflicts that the, that the United States has been involved in? All of us who took American history at some point have read about these things and concluded they probably happened, and yet we weren't there. We only have accounts, uh, some of which are hundreds of years old now. Well, a couple of hundred years at least in the case of, of the Americas, uh, maybe even longer in the case of Europe and uh, the, in Asia and other places. And yet we accept those accounts. That's my point. Now, here's the, here's the thing for me, too. With ancient historical accounts, take the Roman histories as an example, we have very few manuscripts of the Roman histories, and the manuscripts we have are dated. They're some, you know, several years, if not hundreds of thousands, if not hundreds, maybe even thousands of years after Rome, uh, certainly hundreds of years, if memory serves me. We have very few copies of them. They're hundreds of years after the fact, and yet we accept them as historical, historically accurate. Then we come to the New Testament, a document we have over 5,000 copies of, some of the copies date back to the second century, which means they're within a hundred years, not uh, not two hundred or three hundred or a thousand years, within a hundred years or less of the time when Jesus actually lived. So, am I to say to those then, well, that we can't accept those, but these Roman histories we can't accept? It seems a bit disingenuous. It, 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 at best, we're saying. We accept these historical documents because we want to know Roman history, but Christian history is somehow biased. Mm -hmm. So there, there is there is an underlying bias against the supernatural that goes into that. I, I won't deny that, um, but the reality is ancient history is ancient history, and we have to have documentation. We have to have something to look at. The Bible, I think, is certainly reliable. Um, I actually posted on my blog some some uh, years back. Um, just an overview of why I think the, the Bible's reliable. And at the end of the, 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 the discussion, one of the things I note is we have four witnesses who give similar but slightly different stories of Jesus. Mm -hmm. If we were in a court of law and we were giving testimony, these were literal physical people sitting in a court, and they were giving testimony to an event, and you have these four people who gave credible testimony that's slightly different but similar and in some places exactly the same on on details, would that testimony be acceptable in a court of law to a typical juror of peers? My answer is, yeah, they would see that testimony as accurate. On the other hand, if you had four witnesses and they all said exactly the same words on every detail what's the witness what are the what's the jury liable to conclude about those witnesses 
that the witnesses were coached or that the witnesses were given a script to memorize so they'd all say the same thing. The Gospels are different enough to show their unique witnesses. They're similar enough to show their historical value. And I think that's one way I'd take this. You, you've got four witnesses here, and not just the four Gospels, too. We do have outside witnesses that support a lot of what's found in the Gospels. But just dealing with the Bible, that to me strengthens our argument, doesn't damage it. The fact mm-hmm. that the witnesses aren't exactly the same proves that they didn't collaborate. Because mm-hmm. you know? yes. if, if, you, if you and I collaborated on our testimony, we'd end up saying a lot of, we, we sound the same. Mm-hmm. Right? We script it in some ways. That yeah. the, the New Testament, especially the Gospels, are obviously not scripted. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. Um, what would you tell um, our listeners if they're saying, you know, I want to really understand the art of interpretation, which is hermeneutics. Right. Um, what are the steps I need to take in interpreting the passage? Well, the first step, and I, I borrow these uh, from uh, du- uh, Duvall and Hayes. I wrote a book, if you took hermeneutics with me, you probably remember this book, called Grasping God's Word. Um, it's the simplest, by far, approach to hermeneutics that I've read in a long time, and it's fairly straightforward. Um, they have five steps, and I, we really don't have time to go in detail on the five steps, but I can overview them briefly and just give some, some explanation. Step number one is to understand the text, and uh, they, they use the image of a town with a river, and uh, so they say understand the text in their town, in the town of the people who produced the text, so the author... Uh, the uh, the readers, the first recipients of this material. So the first step is to try to understand the text in its proper context historically. Who wrote it? When did they write it? Why did they write it? Who received it? What was their circumstances? Those kinds of things. Now, in some cases, that's fairly easy to figure out. Other cases, not as easy. So uh, the, the evidence there depends on, on the text we're dealing with, obviously. But I think if you dig enough... You can get enough evidence to come to some conclusions about each book of the Bible, all 66 of them. Once I've determined the the the, the context and the intent of uh, of the original recipients and original writers of this material, then I have to ask the question: How how wide is the gap between their experience and my experience? I mean, there there are distances, right? There's not just the chronological distance. The New Testament materials happened in the first century uh, A.D. Here I am in the 21st century, so there's 2,000 years of a gap that's chronological. There's also the, the gap of culture. Uh, you and I weren't raised in the Middle East. We weren't raised in Israel. Um, we don't understand all the things that go into what makes up uh, the cultural aspects of the uh, of the Jews there. So there is the issue of culture. Uh, there's also geographical distance. I've had I've had the the privilege of visiting Israel uh, at least twice in my lifetime, so I've seen some of the geography. But even Israel today is not geographically exactly like it was in Jesus' day or in Paul's day, or much less in Moses' day or Joshua's day. So there's this geographical distance, and 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 then there's cultural uh, other issues that come into play here. That uh, or, or well, language, for example, um, we read the Bible most of us in English. Mm-hmm. The original writers and recipients probably read it in a different language. Certainly, the Old Testament has Hebrew, has Aramaic. Um, the New Testament is written predominantly in Greek. 
So this, there's a language barrier for us. So the second step is recognizing these distances and trying to figure out how to overcome them, right? So mm-hmm. as a non, for people who don't read Greek, how am I to interpret Paul without knowing the Greek text behind it? What does that look like? Uh, that step is one of the more difficult ones, especially because we're trying to transcend um, cultures. We're trying to transcend chronological differences. But there are books, there are materials that will help us do that. Translations, interpretations, uh, atlases, dictionaries, uh, encyclopedias, and whatnot. So this is where we measure the difference between the original recipients and us. Once we've determined how far of a span we've got to go, how, how far the differences are, then we go back to our text and ask the question, what is the truth, what is the timeless principle of this truth? This is the third step. Uh, first, we locate it in its original context. Then we ask the question of what's the difference between the original context and our context. Then we ask, once we know the distance between those, we ask, what's the principle, what's the main point of this text? Right? So what did the author intend, and how can I? what timeless principle is it I can take from that that then is applicable in some sense in my time frame? So the third step is finding the principle of the text. The fourth point is then comparing that principle, that main point or points, depending on how long the text is, with uh, with the rest of the Bible as much as I can. Now, not all of us are Bible scholars. Not all of us know the whole Bible that well, but within reason. Obviously, if we're doing Christian apologetics, we don't want to be defending a non-Christian viewpoint. So mm-hmm. we want to make sure that we're in keeping with the rest of, of uh, Christian history and, and Christian interpretation. So looking at the rest of the Bible to make sure the principle fits what we see in other texts. Uh, the fifth point, then, the fifth step, is then to figure out a way to specifically apply this principle to our current situation. Mm-hmm. Once we've discerned the truth of the text, once we've seen that the truth of the text is, is, is limitless, timeless, in the sense of it's not tied to cultural issues, once we've figured out that it fits the rest of the Bible, then we can ask, now, what does that look like in the 21st century? Um, a great illustration might be from the passage where Jesus actually talks about judging others, the passage that is that's thrown out a lot in the Gospels where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Typically, people quote only part of that verse, the part that says, judge not lest you be judged. They, you know, So we shouldn't judge anybody. Well, even that statement is a judgment, isn't it? I mean, if I'm saying I shouldn't judge anybody, then I'm judging people that I think are judging people. Is that the context of what Jesus really said? If you read further in the context, you'll see that Jesus goes further. What he's warning us against is how we judge other people. He goes on to say, the way you measure out judgment to someone, God will use that kind of measure in judging you. Well, that changes everything. It doesn't rule out the possibility of me judging, but it does temper my judgment in the sense that I want to ask the question, would I want God to judge me the same way, using the same rule that I'm applying to these people? So it does change my judgment, perhaps, in the sense of how I treat other people, but it doesn't mean, it certainly doesn't mean we can't judge. I, I, that, I've never really understood that perspective. Uh, we judge every day. You know, how fast is that car coming? Should I pull out in front of it or not? Uh, is this a good, you know, apple or not? Is this a good piece of meat or not? Those are all judgments. So judgment in and of itself is not evil. 
Jesus is reminding us that how we judge other people can be a good or a bad thing. And you only know that if you pay attention to the context and look at the principle of what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, don't ever judge. In fact, Jesus himself is a judge on a regular basis. So (laughs) if if he's saying, don't judge, he broke his own rule. So um, this is probably going to be the last question because I know we're running out of time here. Um, what would you leave with our, li- what do you want to leave with our listeners? And also what study tools would you recommend? Wow. Study tools. There's a lot of really good materials out there on hermeneutics and apologetics in general. I don't know very many books written on the two intersecting. That's, that is a, a problem. And I think a, a place where Christian thinkers need to, to do some more work. But I, I would recommend the Duvall and Hayes book I mentioned earlier, Grasping God's Word. Even though it's used as a textbook in a lot of schools, it's very easily digested. It's the kind of book you don't have to have a college education to read it. In other words, if, if you can read English, you can make your way through this book. And it lays out the principles. It lays out the ideas in more detail and actually walks you through all of the different types of books you find in the Bible, narrative, history, uh, uh, poetry, these prophecy, and these kinds of things. It shows you how to apply these five steps to each one of those genres. So I think it's an invaluable tool. Uh, that's grasping God's word. There's also a book by Fee and Stewart on how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Uh, this book is is uh, deals a little less with actual interpretation and more with an overview of the Bible in general. But it's a very sound book with very good principles for interpretation. Uh, it's a generalist book, but I think it'd be one that, uh, that that your listeners might find useful in understanding the text in general. Um, there's also uh, there's there's several good books out there on apologetics. Um, I would I'd say you know we we have here at uh, Liberty several apologists that have written books. Gary Habermas has written several books. There is a book on five views of apologetics and, and how to do apologetics. I highly recommend that. Dr. Habermas writes uh, one of the views. Um, and there, there are also several scholars out there that uh, that I would recommend. Uh, Peter Kreeft is a Catholic scholar who's written several books on apologetics that I recommend on a regular basis, defending the Christian faith. Uh, and then you can go all the way back even to C.S. Lewis, who did apologetics. I, I highly recommend his uh, uh, his his book on uh, miracles and other essays, uh, where he defends Christianity against a naturalist perspective. But uh, just about any book by C.S. Lewis contains some hermeneutics and apologetics in them. So that's where I would start, um, and I'm, I'm happy to uh, – uh, I'll compile a, a, a bibliography for you later and email it to you, Lisa, if you want to share it on online with your uh, listeners. That would be great. But, uh, man, I, the list would take too long. The, the, <laughs> the thing I'd like to leave them with is this, is this reality. Um, <clears throat> God has made himself known personally. And by, by both natural revelation and special revelation, Christians understand this. But God has made himself known. He has given to us a book that reveals him to us. We, we don't need to shy away from that book, but nor do we need to take it for granted. Our job as Christians is to understand the text of Scripture within the context that God revealed it, so that we can better apply it, not just to our lives in obedience, we need to obey God, but so that we can then tell other people what God has said. And I do think this is very important. Um, apologetics, we typically think of apologetics as defending the faith, 
But apologetics and hermeneutics run hand in hand. We're simply explaining why we believe what we believe. That's what apologetics is, at least on one level. It's a defense of the evidence of my faith. And to do that requires us to dig in and do good hermeneutics. There's no way you can do one without the other. And if you're doing hermeneutics right, sooner or later, you're going to end up defending your position. That's part of the deal, as far as I'm concerned. So don't be afraid to dig into Scripture. Don't be afraid to ask hard questions. Uh, the hard questions have never faced God, and uh, they shouldn't face us. There are answers if we're willing to look for them. Amen. Thank you. That's encouraging. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Purser, for your time and um, agreeing to be on the podcast with us. I appreciate all your contributions um, to to Liberty and your contribution to me as well. So thank you so much. Well, Lisa, let me just say in closing that I'm very proud of what I see God doing in your life and uh, through these podcasts and through your ministry. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it. So if I, if I could be any assistance to you, you have my phone number. Feel free to call. Well, thank you for listening to another edition of the Jude 3 Project podcast. Um, as always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. Check out our blog. Um, subscribe to us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Jude 3 Project. And remember, at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.